0: Welcome to the 24-7 Prayer Podcast. I'm Brian Heasley.
1: And I'm Hannah Heather. And we're so glad that you joined us today.
0: Today we were speaking to Lisa Coons, who is our National Director for Mission and Justice in the USA. And she is just a firebrand and an encourager. And it's like listening to a poet.
1: Mm, yeah, she she's just incredible. And what I really love about Lisa is that you know she has the justice fire like in her heart absolutely but actually what what feels like it overflows from her more than anything is actually just a message of love of Jesus and abiding in the vine you know that sense of mm. abiding in the presence of God and and out of the overflow of our of our constant union with Christ all of all of the justice stuff flows and that's actually I think really profound and and quite refreshing from someone who you know has really dedicated much of their life to the mission and justice
0: call. We hope you enjoy this we we really did and it was great to listen so sit back be prepared to take some notes there's a moment in this conversation where Lisa talks about other podcasts that we could listen to podcasts from different theologians from people of color that would really help the church broaden its understanding of various theological issues and so just she rattles them off real quick so just please you know grab a pen write those names down and it'll just help you broaden your understanding of so many deep issues we hope you enjoy this
2: Mm,
1: grab a pen make yourself a strong cup of coffee and enjoy
0: So it's a really exciting day today. We have Lisa Coons with us, based in the USA. Lisa, we'd love to you to introduce yourself. Who are you, where are you from, and what do you do?
2: I and my family live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the United States, where I also serve as 24-7 Prayers National Director of Mission and Justice, along with stewarding a spiritual direction practice geared towards serving faith leaders around the world.
1: Wow. So you, be fair to say you keep yourself busy, Lisa. <laughs> Amazing. Can you, could you just tell us, like, why is it that you yourself are passionate about prayer? Like, what difference has prayer made in your life? Why, why do you get up in the morning and think, I'm going to spend my day trying to help people to pray or trying to outwork mission and justice? What's your motivation?
2: And I love that question. I think I think I'm passionate about prayer because I see it as the primary conduit that hosts my relationship with God, wow. and my relationship with God is a huge aspect of how I live and engage with the world I live in. I've sort of always viewed prayer as both communion and communication between God and I. Mm. It's communion because not all of my prayers are an exchange of words. For me, it includes the art of drawing near and simply beholding God. Mm. It includes the stolen glances throughout the day, the unspoken exchanges reflecting mutual affection, and the space of just enjoying being with God and in one another's company, which I view just as much an aspect of prayer as the more traditional take, of prayer as communication in which God and I share our thoughts, hearts, hopes, and invitations with each other, along mm. with my request for God's intervention in the lives of my family and friends and neighbors, and you know, all the other humans I share this planet with. Plus, God is super smart. I'm yeah. The smartest person alongside me within me in any space that I walk in to me you know it's just the ability to be able to ask for his input mm. and help in all of the scenarios I find myself in this is this is like the the real power place of prayer for me so I'm I'm passionate about prayer because it's where I cultivate my personal relationship with God and it's where we partner together to bring on earth as in heaven through intercession and requests of all, of all kinds. Um, mm,
1: I love that, Lisa. Like, talk to us a bit more about the stolen glances, because I love that. And I, I remember someone saying to me once, um, and I, I find it so helpful that, you know, if you go and say you do your NR in the 24-7 prayer room at 7am, it's like, almost as if you spend that hour sort of reorientating yourself to the presence of God. So that it's not that you spend one hour praying and then the other, however many hours you're awake, <laughs> um, not praying, but more that's almost the one hour in the day that that you're not praying. Like that's the hour that you're spending, just reorientating yourself to the presence that's always there. So then you go into your day and, and you're actually praying constantly throughout the day, which it reminded me of that when you talked about the stolen glances and I guess I'm just thinking of like you know say like a high school student is listening to this and they're thinking you know I get up and I go out and I go to school and I'm doing my day and it's like you know so much is going on and then there's mobile phones like pulling for my attention and there's social media like how can we be present and engage with the stolen glances in our everyday lives.
2: Another great question. You know, for me, those stolen glances just are are on the heels of being absolutely fascinated by God. I mean, yeah. he's he's eccentric. He's its own person. He's represented in the Trinity and how he revealed himself in Scripture as profound goodness and beauty. And light and the answer to all of our longings, and yet holding a very distinct personality. This right. all just fascinates me. And his, you know, his eccentricity to have fallen in love with this, this uh this thing called humanity, it's just intriguing for me.
1: Yeah. Plus,
2: the primary way that he he sort of introduces himself is as father. And in those stolen glances, for me, there are two roles. There's the role of bride and bridegroom. For this one who wants to make me his own, I find myself entering into uh, prayer through the lens of just cultivating that romance, cultivating the intimacy with the one who calls himself bridegroom. Those stolen glances are just as as, uh, full of affection Mm. as they would be in the in this sort of understanding of bride and bridegroom that we have just on earth between a man and a woman. Hmm. Mm. I, just, uh, I love him and I find myself falling more in love with him and interacting with him through that lens means that I am turning my heart in his direction at stop signs and in the Starbucks line, not to do any, work of spiritual renovation or to pray prayers to help save some corner of my world, but just because he's altogether lovely mm. and I want to sort of behold him. And scripture talks a little bit about how there's power even in beholding him, that in beholding him, we become like him. Mm. So I uh, I also recognize this way that God wants to wants us to see him as father and and I feel like very much like, you know, a kid roaming around in the world. And and the world is a complex place. I just find myself looking back to make sure dad is somewhere in the room to make sure <laughs> I can see him and get to him quickly mm-hmm. if I need to. You know, I'm out in this playground called the world he made for us. And just throughout the day, I need to look back and be able to remember and remind myself and see that he is He is present with me and that he is good and that I am not alone, no matter what perils or beauties I'm facing, that that he's with me. And so yeah. my stolen glances sort of fall into those two categories.
1: Wow. I love those two categories. I think that's really helpful. I would love to just ask though, have, have you ever had a season or a time in your life or seasons maybe where you're a bit less enchanted with the bridegroom? Like, have you ever walked through seasons where like prayer has felt difficult, where you haven't had that kind of bubbling over love and joy when you think of God? Have have you ever found prayer challenging?
2: Well, that question reminds me of two scenarios. And the first one, just as a disclaimer, I need to get out the way. I, I've been fortunate in that over the course of my relationship, I have, I've experienced uh, the presence of God, the, the the community, the companionship of God. That that's felt like a real experience for me. But I had a season in my life. It was ever so long ago, but a season in my life where that little minx disappeared on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a little miffed with him about that, where there was no more sense of the presence of God. Wow. My life was still as full and as rich as it ever was. The gifts and graces that he had given me were still in full operation, but the manifest presence of God was nowhere to be seen. Wow. And I was miserable. Right. The kind of miserable where I'd be driving down the street and I, I and I'd remember just this profound absence wow. of, presence of God and I'd have to pull over on the side of the highway and just weep. And, wow. you know, my response was, I just kept knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. I was going to make him miserable, make it hard for him to stay away, as it were, this one who's always with me. Of course, he's always with me, but I was just going to make it really difficult for him to do that hide and seek act that he was pulling on me. It mm. broke my heart. It tenderized me in some really profound ways. It was actually fellowship with so many of the saints in, uh, in older generations who talk about dark nights of the soul or talk about what it means to live with a God that is not in full view. So my first response was just to make God miserable and to make it hard for him <laughs> to stay away. But.
0: Do you think we can actually do that, make God miserable?
2: Uh, I just was gonna knock I was going to irritate him into coming back
0: <laughs> <laughs> like the widow who knocked at night on the door I get it I get it
1: I think I think that's one of my favorite responses to dark night of the soul just like no I'm not having
2: this <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I understood that he had his purposes in it but I had some purposes for him that I needed to make clear <laughs>
0: Uh, so Lisa, just just on that, well, not quite on that, but you, we're talking about those moments where God sometimes feels absence, where there's brokenness in the world, and you were during lockdown. You were very instrumental in taking a, a quite a large posse of people down to uh, the the situation that happened with George Floyd and the praying into some of the injustice that you have witnessed towards people of color in your own nation and I'd love you to talk a little bit about what is it like to journey as a Christian as a as a black woman in America with faith and in a leadership position what what is what are we learning right now what did you learn through that and what are we learning in 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 general around this whole situation
2: you know I've been honored to Sort of serve as a catalyst for um, for rallying groups of people toward justice causes of all kinds, mm. yeah. and have found great joy and great delight in that. Even you know, even intensely sensitive and painful justice causes, like um, for instance, like human trafficking or sex trafficking, mm. but none had come as close to home as this particular one this this uh this idea of partnering with God to make inroads in this place of race relations especially in our nation where the those concepts are deeply rooted in the origin and development of our nation and my own sort of consistent experiences with prejudice and discrimination of all kinds Um, just as a part of my lifelong narrative, Mm. it was just profoundly personal. Mm. At the same time, it felt just as much as a kind of revival or spiritual awakening as any of those traditional kinds that show up usually in sacred spaces and transform hearts that renovate hearts and bring people to repentance and set them in new trajectories in their lives. This felt just as much a catalyst or a kind of move of God as did so many other more traditional revivals in the past, I saw God's heart in wanting a nation and other nations to really reckon with this idea of the equality of all mankind mm-hmm. and the Amago day in the face of every human being. So I saw the this revival, the spiritual awakening pushing against these uh, these these concepts. Uh, of culture and of societies that would call some better than and would call some lesser than. Mm. I just very much uh, the hand of God and the movement of God in the midst of the messiness and the complexities of what resulted in the death of that poor boy, George, dying on the streets in Minneapolis. Mm. And I think that it's a revival that continues, that that the changes and shifts that were made uh, in, in the wake of that were needful. And while the conversation isn't as much on the surface around the nations as it was in the months that followed, it is still a conversation that is being had, and that itself is important.
0: In that conversation, obviously, we, me, Brian, white, you know, man, 55, middle-class, I like to think of myself as middle-class, uh, what do we need to hear? What do I need to hear, Lisa? What what? What's the sound I should be listening to? How do I respond in a way that isn't patronizing or isn't tokenistic? What, what does the church do at times like this?
2: Uh, some of the things that are helpful are also some of the things that are profoundly elementary. One is... Uh, a willingness to acknowledge that that profound discrimination exists in mm. my context uh, we refer to it as racism in other' country contexts. It might be sexism or classism or or whatever it is but yeah. but first, the acknowledgement that it exists and that in its existence it oppresses an entire group of people mm. The second is to believe the stories of those oppressed, that the response in acknowledging that that this exists shifts from making the oppressed prove their oppression or prove that it is a level that merits your time, attention, and prayers to, to a heart that is set to hear and to believe mm. the stories that are coming from those who are most commonly and consistently suffering under all forms and all levels of societal discrimination. Mm. The mm. third is it falls in the category of what some might call empathy and others might call lament. Just this, uh, this willingness to uh so to sort of stand in the shoes of someone, to, to empathize and, uh, have a heart that's willing to lament with the, uh, the hurdles and the unique challenges that have gone with this level of consistent oppression. And the next thing is to join in allyship. Hmm. The the scripture talks about it in terms of being a voice for the voiceless, standing in and championing the cause of those who are oppressed and those who are marginalized. Scripture is replete with very clear responses God wants us to have to those in that people group. We're just not used to putting those in the people group that include those who've suffered racism, those who've suffered classism. Hmm. We have... An idea of what poor and oppressed and voiceless look like, that uh, that these things we're talking about today don't always make that cut, even though they fit perfectly, I think, mm-hmm. into what God was calling us to pay attention to. So allyship. Mm-hmm. And now we fall into the arena of discipleship because allying with the marginalized, the poor and the oppressed, is—that is, that is a discipleship issue. The church is called to be discipled into that. So yeah. that that is a part of how she moves through the world. But that hasn't always been the case. And so sometimes it can feel like if you give attention to issues like this, that you are veering from a calling to just preach the gospel, not realizing that this is at the heart of the gospel. Yeah, mm. Genesis to Revelation, God is always highlighted. He has always practiced equity and highlighted those on the margins, those who society has consistently discriminated against, or shown prejudice against, or oppressed. He has been faithful to call us into that calling. And so things in seasons like this, we have to be faithful to respond um, and, and understand that this too is what it means to be a witness, and mm. that this too is what it means to preach the gospel, and mm-hmm. this too what it means to to do justice in the earth, yeah
0: so that's so beautiful and so eloquently put, tell me what does unity and diversity look like in the american church what's the dream what's the big idea what's the vision
2: <laughs> um the The dream of unity of diversity, specifically in the American context is is an understanding or the living out of unity without the expectation of uniformity. Mm -hmm. That's good. The way that we sort of have unintentionally approached unity is in the context of uniformity. And so we have these places where we call what we're doing unity, but really what we're doing is being unified with those who are most already like us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the dream is unity without the expectation of uniformity, that that shackle has been released from the definition of unity so that we can explore more biblical fulfillments of it. It's the kind of unity that aims for harmony and understands the need for different chords, in order to reveal and reflect the many aspects of God's ways and works. Oh, it's beautiful. I love that. that refuses to colonize, but rather respects and is able to champion the unique and diverse ways others rightly reveal and reflect God's ways and works. Mm. Unity and diversity reflects a willingness to work together for the greater good even though we identify that each tribe or each group has a different emphasis or a different way to do it that is a different a different um note that they bring in order to create what is harmony or chords that resonate with the beautiful sound of on earth as in heaven mm. unity that is born from god causes us to confront the places in ourselves that would be territorial, Hmm. that feel like that we would experience a loss if we shared our spaces and resources and shared our initiatives and worked together in new ways. Unity has the ability, at least from God, to push back the kind of, darkness that would keep us separated Mm. like marbles in a bag. Unity that I dream into actually allows us to be fitly joined together, compacted so that we're able to resource one another with the full measure of the resources of heaven. And unity of that kind is the most profound witness that the world can see mm. that God actually existed and sent Jesus to save the world and that he is good. Scripture says it, says it very plainly that this kind of unity um, uh, represents Christ being lifted up and has the ability to draw all men to himself, even those who have long and rightly labeled the body of Christ hypocrites and judgmental and not playing well with others and not sharing their toys in the playground, mm-hmm. that this kind of unity moving toward it would do more for evangelism and for the witness of the body of Christ in America yes. than almost any other initiative has been able to do.
0: It's a super compelling dream, Lisa. I love it. And I'm there. Tell me, what does that look like practically? How do how do we... How does that actually outwork in the day-to-day life of, say, a local church? What what practical steps can we take to include others, to bring other people onto the platform, to change the way we do things? That isn't just kind of tokenism. That's a phrase I hear a lot, oh, we don't want to be tokenistic, but I... I I don't even know if that's a good phrase anymore. So I'd love to hear what you think about that. What's practical in this? How could we practically see some changes?
2: You know, tokenism is bad, but I am all for representation. Mm-hmm. That may be bad, but but representation is actually good. It's actually good to have um, to have diverse types of people groups. Diverse ethnicities and those that represent diverse cultures sort of uh, placed whenever is uh, appropriate front and center. And, uh, and, And so I'm a huge fan of championing the cause of representation, but you know, the real unity and diversity in a congregation is done in the work of of its leaders plotting and strategizing with the permission of God and dreaming into what it could look like to reach out to congregations that are of predominant different ethnicity and culture than they are, to mm-hmm. explore together leadership team to leadership team, what it could look like to allow the different cultures, um, the different perspectives to influence one another, what it could look like for for two churches or a couple of churches.
1: I'd love to know, Lisa. Like, I just, I love what you're sharing. And I think that message, that call to the church that you are bringing, that prophetic call, which is, you know, justice and bringing people in from the margins, like, this is not peripheral to the gospel. This is absolutely central to the vision of Jesus for humanity, to the work of restoration and you know, the work of resurrection, like that, the, this is central to the work of resurrection that he's doing in our world. How do you overcome? Because I think there's something about that message that it feels like we have to keep saying it again and again and again. And you always, always seem to get this pushback from certain corners of the church that would say, it's a secondary <laughs> issue, you know, and, and and all that kind of thing. How How can we keep keep that voice strong and 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 I guess the flip side of that question is like how do we not get tired and I know I have heard from so many friends of color that you know after George Floyd's death there was just this like it was like a tiredness that led to a massive outcry but how do we kind of keep crying without getting tired I guess is my question how do we how do we persevere in what honestly does often feel like a fight for justice
2: you know what i think honestly is that zeal makes a very bad god ooh i, I
1: like that
2: tell
1: us tell us more
2: passion for an issue makes a terrible savior <laughs> <laughs> And so we who work in the fields of justice, who have passion for whatever these diverse issues are, we have the pingent of, of uh, being led by that zeal and that passion and continuing to effort and effort and effort. But as followers of Christ, Jesus is the savior of the world, mm-hmm. not, not us. Right. And our passions can't lead and guide us. Uh, but our Savior can mm-hmm. by His Spirit. There is a call to justice for everyone who who is a saint on this side of heaven. And that call, like any other call, is intrinsically meant to be attached to this thing called, if you abide in me, <laughs> yeah. then I will resource you from below. Right. It's, it's this attachment and abiding in God and this this leaning on the leadership of his spirit that without those seemingly simple pieces our zeal will take us out in places that are unsustainable it'll it'll cause us to be burnt, heart, burnt out in heart and soul all in the name of preaching and proclaiming good hmm. yeah so god is the what is important but the how is equally important
1: that is that I love that Lisa. that's 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 really helpful
0: and you have experienced like micro critique you've experienced larger critique as you've gone along you have i know you've you you know even as just in how you live your life you've championed as you say you know victims of injustice in many different areas and many different ways how on earth do you keep going you seem to me as strong today as when I first met you 10 years ago or whenever, that you're as passionate about this now as you were then. How do you keep going? How do you persevere?
2: Whether the scenario is is uh, serving as a sacred activist on the landscape of anti-racism, or, or whether it is uh, playing out in terms of being profoundly persecuted for your faith in some other side of the world, whether that looks like being imprisoned and tortured or whether that looks like um, just experiencing pushback from your points of view um, as you work to enact justice in the world. I feel like that the answers from God are, are at their heart all the same. You know, and I don't mean this to sound trite, even though it sounds like it should be written on a doily or a Christian Hallmark. (laughs) They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not go weary. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They that abide in him will experience the resources from him to do all that God has called us to do. And that ties back to the thing that we were just talking about, that the from where yeah. is as important as the what. And so it's true. There are many of my colleagues, both colleagues in ministry and colleagues in the work of sacred social justice that have fallen by the wayside because they reached a point where they uh, they were burnt out, that they were weary in the work And that's why a part of our calling, particularly in 24-7, as I build out the the justice wing of it, that our calling is to establish the right foundation for anybody that wants to work in the field of justice. And the right foundation isn't, it doesn't begin with, go for it with all your heart. The right foundation is the work of reconciliation begins at first being reconciled to God, Mm -hmm. being rightly connected to God. Mm -hmm. Any act, that we hope to disciple and create is experiences that primary call to absolute surrender and reckless abandon to the one who made them and to the one who is responsible to guide the pace of the journey, to to extend the strategy for the journey and to resource the journey. And anyone without those is vulnerable to burnout mm-hmm. and to and to just just hardship in unnecessary ways for the one who is sort of promised protection. Yeah. It is not easy even with all of God's resources. We're still humans. We still get hurt. We our souls and our emotions are still impacted. Yeah. But God has kept true to his promise that they that wait on the Lord They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. They will mount up with wings as eagles. Amazing. So this is a prayerful life you're talking about, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: This is a, a life of devotion to him, a life of... Abiding. Abiding. I love that, about being grafted in. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Lisa, tell me, who are your heroes
1: can I attach another question to yeah. that question?
0: <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> I was just moving on there, and uh, Hannah's just drawn us back in. But no, it's no, good. No,
1: it's attached to the hear your hero's question because I think, Lisa, you raised the point of like unity doesn't mean uniformity, and I'm really aware that when I look at the books that I'm reading, I'm there's often just a uniformity of like I read a lot of the same types of. The stuff like so. In so, Brian's saying who are your heroes? I'd love to know as well. Like, who are you reading? Like, what people of color should we be reading? Like, who mm. are you being influenced by? And what what can I be reading?
0: That's sorry. That's really good. I, I I saw a Christian leader put his top twenty books on something recently, and he was quite an influential chap. And nineteen of them were white men. But anyway, just saying.
1: Who 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 are your heroes, Lisa? And who can we be influenced by?
2: I think. <laughs> Of course, in our common culture, even the idea of reading um, has shifted to listening and podcasts. But mm-hmm. I would encourage people to listen to uh, the content and podcasts of people, oddly enough, like J.T. Thomas.
1: Yeah. Um, um,
2: people like Octavia Albert, a Black preacher, a, prof- a professor of theology called Vincent Beaucaked and Brian Bantam and Charles Octavius Keith Augustus Burton Ka- Kelly Brown Douglas now I know that so many listeners won't be familiar with these names but the idea is to get them um get them used to searching beyond mm-hmm just what is what is commonly and currently um, available and heralded within their group yep. to begin to do the traditional google search to see what theologians and preachers and writers of color are are on the best of reading list yeah. and, and allow yourselves to just consistently integrate those voices in your reading materials, you have to remember here in America, our seminaries, you can go through an entire seminary and not have interaction with any uh, books by Black authors and no Black theologians mm-hmm. because of how centered we are yep. on uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, white race and input mm-hmm. and video and I'm not even saying that's bad. I'm just saying that being being so profoundly centered in these ways does a great disservice in the, the space of discipleship. Absolutely. Because our discipleship is meant to include a diversity of voices. Yeah, yeah
1: and we miss yeah. so much, don't we? We miss so much when we don't hear so everyone.
0: So basically, don't listen to our podcast. <laughs> is that what you're saying? No, it's not. <laughs> Don't just listen to our podcast. Don't just listen to our podcast. There are I'd others. say that's
1: probably good life advice. Don't just listen to us <laughs> on anything ever. Um, Lisa, that's been super helpful. I, if you don't mind, I'd really love to land us in like a slightly more personal question, um, which is like, as you look back over your life and your walk with Jesus, can you think of one experience of prayer that you will never forget?
2: Hmm. I want to say this, that God always answers my prayers. His answers vary. Hmm. He always answers. But if you want a testimony of when he answered my prayers exactly the way I wanted him to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good caveat. I love that. Yes, please. We do want that.
2: (laughs) Those are times when my prayers were a catalyst for physical healing of friends and strangers on the street for freedom from demonic oppression at the utterance of the name of Jesus, for a dire financial need met in some unexpected way because I took a leap of free faith and prayed into a situation that looked like there was simply no way, or for the presence of peace pushing back on the onslaught of stress and strong anxiety in the life of a member of my family. All of those are true experiences for me. Mm-hmm. However, the most profound Uh, experience in terms of prayer and God's response to it and I'm okay to get rebuffed for this answer but the most profound one is when God confirms his presence his nearness. it is it it, it, that's breakthrough time for me that is that that's that's it for me
0: wow it's that great phrase I am with you I am with you I am with you I love that that God continually wants to tell us that and the reassurance of his ongoing and complete presence. And Lisa, thank you for modeling that so well as someone who lives close to Jesus and challenges us to follow in his way in a more radical way. So Mm. we really have enjoyed listening to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. And uh, yeah, we're going to... We're going to keep trying. We're going to keep working. We're going to keep pushing alongside you. And thank you for all that you contribute in so many ways.
2: You are most welcome.
1: Thank you for listening to the 24-7 Prayer Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our work, please do visit 247prayer.com.